So here we are again, still in samsara. And we will continue on from where we uh, were this morning, talking about true cessations. There's a question first, but before that, we'll do the short recitations and have some silent meditation to cultivate uh, your motivation. So we have one question. Okay, when I, oh, when practicing the antidotes to afflictions, I sometimes find it difficult to lead a layperson's life. The antidotes paralyze me or put me in a situation where I don't know how to adjust or apply the teachings in my everyday life. So, in these situations, do I avoid practicing the antidotes, or? What is your advice? Okay, so here's an example. So she's a vegetarian, okay? It's not a hardship for her. It's not something that she adopted after a lot of serious meditation, but it just makes her happier, okay? However, um, you know, uh, when she recalls meditating on the suffering of animals, she feels nausea. Uh, when she goes around people who are eating meat or uh, cooking meat in front of her, um, or even seeing the humanely raised farm animals when she goes to collect vegetables from a community-supported agricultural (laughs) farm. Okay? So, So that's one example. She gives some more here. You know about not wanting to about using a comforter and and things like this. Okay, so uh, yeah, I'm a vegetarian too. And sometimes when people, uh, if people ask me if it's okay for them to eat meat, um, I say, I mean, it depends who the people are. Sometimes I say yes. Sometimes. They're the kind of people where I can say, you know, see if you can order something else. But I don't go out to the to restaurants very often, or I'm not in that situation so much. Um, okay, but I think when that happens, uh, okay, so you may feel kind of nausea at the idea of eating meat, or disgust, maybe it's a better word, at the idea of meeting, eating meat when you're around people who are eating meat. So you keep that to yourself. It helps you remain as a vegetarian. And then you cultivate compassion for the animals. And, uh, you know, you can use it as a reinforcement for continuing to be a vegetarian and not harming other animals. 
okay? When you go to the, to the farm to collect your vegetables, you know, don't look at the meat. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but even if you see the animals, I mean, the animals are still alive, you can go and say some mantra because uh, that will put some good seeds on their mind stream and, uh, you know, have compassion for them and also for the people who are killing them. Okay. So you don't have to, uh, you don't want to get to a point where, uh, you know, you kind of go overboard in all of this. Yeah. Some of your reflections you just have to keep to yourself and use uh, for yourself when you're feeling attachment. But then when other people are doing things, uh, you know, there's often nothing much you can do. I used to live near a lake, and there were people fishing in the lake. And it it, it distressed me, but I can't go up to them and say, uh, you know, stop. And uh, I can't let the the feeling of distress kind of overwhelm me so that I, I am judging them and I feel totally overwhelmed with, with that. That doesn't do any good. So it's just, you know, I relegate it to a feeling of, of sadness and then make prayers for both the fishing fishermen and uh, the fish. What else can you do? You know, um, with comforters, there's a choice. Not all the comforters are made of of um, of down. So get one of the ones that aren't. And uh, you know, I don't know if they kill the the birds for the down or if they kill the birds for something else, and the down is used afterwards. I don't know much about that industry, um, you know, but again, a, a feeling of, you know, compassion for the animals, wishing that they have human lives, and then the same for the people who, uh, who kill them, you know, hoping that they can one day uh, purify their actions, okay? So you don't want to stay with a feeling of like, this is just all too much, yuck, okay? Because uh, you have to function in the world. So you replace what you feel, you know, with a sense of compassion. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, you know, you, you get to the point of uh, everything drives you crazy, you know. You go to the supermarket and that you see uh, a parent who is a little bit, you know, who's stressed out and they're out of and they speak harshly to their child. And then you just go, ah, you know, this is samsara, and this child is getting damaged, and on and on, I can't stand it. And then you fall into personal distress, okay? And that doesn't work very well. You have to, you know, you have compassion for the child, for the parent. Silently in your mind, you make prayers for them. But... uh you don't want to fall into a sense where you're uh, a feeling where you're distressed about seeing everything around you that doesn't have to that doesn't fit in the dharma you have to look more at your own mind when it doesn't fit into the dharma okay 
Okay, so we're at the top of page 17. So true cessation is attained not by wishing or praying for it, but by means of training the mind. His Holiness says this again and again and again, because I think he sees a lot of people who just have so much faith, and then they pray, you know, Buddha, may this happen, Buddha, may that happen, Buddha, may I realize this, Buddha, may I realize that. And they don't actually engage in training the mind to develop those qualities, they just pray to have them. And so that's why His Holiness says, you know, you can't just pray, you have to act. Okay. Yeah, there's some joke that, uh, like about climate change, where people, well, God and Buddha were uh, talking, and meanwhile, all these prayers are coming up from Earth, from Buddhists and from Christians and Jews and Muslims, saying, you know, God, Buddha, please stop the climate crisis. And God and Buddha look at each other and they say, you guys made the crisis, you solve it. Yeah. In other words, uh, you know, beware of your own actions and how they bring results. And don't just pray to somebody, you know, who's not there to fix the whole problem that you yourself created. Okay. And His Holiness is always stressing that we have to use logic and reason again and not pray. Now the question comes, yeah, the Tibetans do for, you know, so many pujas. All the pujas have request verses, you know. We, we do Lama Chupa twice a month. Some people do it every day. I do it daily, yeah. And, and it's, you know, please, I request blessings to realize this. I request inspiration to realize that. So it sounds like, you know, okay, well, I'm going to drink my tea, and Buddha, you kind of uh, give me the blessings and give me the realizations, and and then that's good. Uh, but that's not it. The reason those, those prayers are, are uh, worded that way is that we do so often look external to ourselves for the, reason, for the solution to our problems. So here, when we, we think of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and request their inspiration, it's a psychological method for us to remind ourselves that these are important things and important realizations, important qualities that we have to develop in our own practice. Yeah. And His Holiness does say that, uh, you know, these holy beings can influence us. Okay. I, this was one of the questions that I, I asked him, you know, when I was asking the questions that Westerners have. Uh, you know, how, how does that work? And can these beings really uh, influence our minds? And His Holiness uh, started talking about FDR and saying, if you uh, make prayers to FDR, can he really do something for you? Versus if you make prayers to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And so I thought, I wouldn't pray to FDR. 
you know? And I certainly wouldn't pay to pray, pray to the previous president. Um, and could they anyway influence my mind? Do they have any kind of ability? I don't think so, you know, but when I think of the qualities of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and their incredible love and compassion for sentient beings uh, and that they are perceiving our situation and wanting only to help us, then, yeah, you know, it would make some sense that to the best of their ability and their power, they could do what they can to influence our minds or influence the situations that we were, we encounter so that our minds, you know, develop, yeah, and understand something we didn't understand before. But just praying, yeah, it may make you feel good, but it doesn't, you know, and it's certainly better than, than rooting for a sports team. Um, no offense to our, our Red Sox fan. Um, but, you know, you, it, you, we have to act. We have to cultivate our, our good qualities ourselves. Okay, so the principal true path that trains the mind is the right view. So of the Eightfold Path, the right view, um, here it's called the wisdom realizing selflessness. Okay, So we must put energy into understanding the four truths, first intellectually, then experientially, and finally with penetrative wisdom. When a person on the Shravaka path, that's somebody following the fundamental vehicle, penetrates the four truths with direct realization, she becomes a stream-enterer and has, and the reason it's called stream-enter is they have entered the stream leading to nirvana. She, come, she becomes an Arya who will proceed to nirvana and never again be an ordinary being. So ordinary beings are all those, uh, including the first two uh, paths of the bodhisattva vehicle uh, of people who are not aryas, who have not realized emptiness directly. When those following the bodhisattva path gain this realization, there is the direct perception of emptiness, they become, an, they become arya bodhisattvas and will irreversibly proceed to full awakening. Okay, so that, remember at the beginning, His Holiness said there were three aspects of the truths, the path, uh, or the, the aspect, I'm sorry, <laughs> the aspect of the four truths, the, um, or, I'm sorry, three aspects. Okay, the first one was the nature of the four truths, then how to engage with each of the four truths, and the final one, the result of each truth. Okay, so we're at the second of those, how to engage with each truth. So how do we engage with or practice the four truths? True dukkha is to be fully known or understood. Okay, that's how we are to engage with it, yeah? 
to understand it, to know it. True origins are to be abandoned. So through our practice, we want to cut those off. First with the factor uh, substitution, then through samadhi, then through eradicating them through wisdom. Okay. True cessations are to be are to be actualized. So all those true cessations that occur as we progress through the path, um, where the afflictions are cut off and never to return. And then the true paths are to be cultivated. So we want to uh, develop those. We need to develop the wisdom realizing emptiness as well as all of the other paths. Okay. So uh, Maitreya Sublime Continuum, okay, which is, it has two titles, Ratna Gotra Vibhanka and also Uttara Tantra. Those are the Sanskrit titles. Gyulama in uh, Tibetan, Sublime Continuum in English. So that says, in the case of disease, we need to diagnose it, remove its causes, attain the happy state of health, and rely on suitable medicine. Similarly, we need to recognize our dukkha, remove its causes, actualize its cessation, and rely on the suitable path. So that's how we... Uh, relate to or engage with each of the the truths. Now, the result of that, in terms of the resultant understanding of the four truths, okay, true dukkha is to be fully understood, but there is no dukkha to understand. True origins are to be abandoned, but there are no true origins to under to abandon. True cessation is to be actualized, but there is no cessation to actualize. And true paths are to be cultivated, but there are no paths to cultivate. So what are they talking about? Okay. So when we engage with each path, yeah, we're trying to, uh, you know, Abandon what is to be abandoned, practice and actualize what to be practiced and actualized. However, when we meditate deeply on things, yeah, even the four truths, we see that none of them have inherent existence. Okay. When we, when we think of our true dukkha as inherently existent, we make it very concrete, but when we investigate with analytical wisdom and try and find exactly what true dukkha is, we'll find that we cannot identify any inherently existent thing that is true dukkha. And the same for the origins, the same even for the true cessations. They're also empty. The wisdom paths, are also empty of inherent existence. So that's why it says these things are to be understood, abandoned, actualized, and cultivated. But when you look at them from the point of view of emptiness, 
there is nothing inherently existent to abandon, to um, understand, to abandon, to actualize, and to cultivate. Okay, so this is really bringing your understanding of the four truths to a very high level. Okay, because if we grasp at the four truths as inherently existent, then we're not even an Arya. Okay, we haven't attained the Arya path yet. So this may be understood in two ways. So the first is common to all Buddhist traditions. Once we have completely understood dukkha, there is no more dukkha to understand. Okay, so this is a simple kind of conventional way of understanding it. Once we have completely, um, once we have totally overcome its origins, there are no more causes of suffering to, or, to overcome. Once we have perfectly actualized cessations, our liberation is complete and there are no more uh, cessations to actualize. And once we have fully cultivated the paths, there is nothing more to cultivate. Okay, so that's one way of understanding it. But according to the Madhyamaka approach, which is the one I was referring to, a couple of minutes ago, referring to the ultimate nature, the uncommon Madhyamaka referred approach refers to the ultimate nature of the four truths, their emptiness. And so here the Buddhist thought is that it is possible for us to overcome true dukkha and its origins and to actualize true cessation and true paths because their very nature is empty of inherent existence. So why are we able to attain liberation and full awakening? Because the very nature of both the things to abandon and the things to practice is empty, okay, of inherent existence. Now, why do they need to be empty in order for us to abandon and practice, okay? Because things that, if things exist inherently, they don't depend on any other factors, which means they are not, they didn't arise by causes, yeah? So then they must be permanent and they do not change. If they are permanent and do not change, then any other factors cannot influence them. So even if you practice the path, it isn't going to overcome ignorance because your ignorance is permanent and immune to any causes or conditions. Okay? So for things to be abandoned, for other things to be practiced, They have to be impermanent. Inherently existent things cannot be impermanent because they exist with an independent essence that does not rely on anything else. So then if you have other factors that are usually causes and conditions, they cannot affect these inherently existent things. But, thank goodness, Inherent existence does not exist at all. 
And that is what gives us the opportunity to abandon dukkha and its origins and to actualize uh, true, um, true cessations and the path. Hmm? Okay, because their very nature is empty of inherent existence. Since they are primordially empty, here primordially, usually primordial means from the beginning. In Buddhism, we don't talk about the beginning. So here primordially means beginninglessly. Okay? So since they are beginninglessly empty and have never existed inherently, dukkha and its origins can be eliminated and true cessations and true paths can be actualized. Okay. Their ultimate nature, emptiness, is also called natural nirvana. So here's another kind of nirvana. Yeah, But this is referring to the emptiness that is the ultimate nature of all phenomena that has always been their ultimate nature. It wasn't created. It wasn't anything. It's always the nature of everything that exists, including ourselves. Okay. So their ultimate nature, emptiness, is also called natural nirvana. And this allows for us to attain the three other types of nirvana. Nirvana without remainder, uh, nirvana with remainder, and non-abiding nirvana, which will all be explained in a few chapters. But briefly, okay, so natural nirvana is the basis, the emptiness of inherent existence of everything. Yeah. And so that's what allows us to abandon what's to be abandoned and practice what's to be practiced. Okay. The nirvana uh, let's do the nirvana with remainder. We talked about that before. Okay. Now here, according to the common view, you know, uh, of all the uh, Dharma schools, yeah, or all the tenant systems, here uh, the remainder is of the afflictive aggregates. Because remember, when the, the lifetime when someone obtains arhatship, they're still born they have ignorance at the beginning of that lifetime, so their aggregates are called polluted or afflictive. And uh, they still have the remainder of those when they attain nirvana in that lifetime. So that, while they're alive, is called nirvana with remainder. When they pass away and they abandon those polluted uh, aggregates, then their nirvana is called nirvana without remainder. Okay, and then um, non-abiding nirvana, that applies especially to the Buddhas because the Buddhas do not abide either in samsara or in an arhat's nirvana. Okay, so samsara, of course, it's obvious. You can't be, a Buddha doesn't want to abide in samsara because you can't help sentient beings when you yourself are messed up. It's like the blind leading the blind. Okay, so they've abandoned. They don't abide in samsara. But they don't abide in a personal nirvana that arhats do. 
meditating on uh, the nature of reality and just enjoying that. Yeah, because Buddhas have the great compassion in the bodhicitta, and, you know, from the get-go, they have been motivated to attain full awakening in order to benefit others. And how do they benefit others? They appear in various different forms in the samsaric realms to teach us, to guide us, and so on. So, like Shakyamuni Buddha, for example. Yeah, And so those Buddhas don't abide in samsara. They don't abide in an arhat's nirvana. Okay? That's non-abiding nirvana. And that's unique to the Buddhas. Okay. Uh, okay, there's a, another way to explain the with and without... Um, Remainder. I'll just go through it briefly because it'll come later, okay? According to the Madhyamakas, yeah, well, first of all, the, the, the view common to all the schools, first you have nirvana with remainder, then you have nirvana without remainder, okay? From the Madhyamaka view, first you have the nirvana, the nirvana with remain, uh, without remainder. And here the remainder is uh, the uh, mistaken appearances. Okay. And then, uh, so you have the nirvana without remainder when you're in meditative equipoise, directly non-conceptually realizing emptiness. And when you come out of that, then you have nirvana with remainder which is uh, where you still have the appearances of true existence, even though you don't grasp those appearances as true. Okay. So, um, so according to the Madhyamaka approach, true dukkha is to be fully understood on the conventional level, but on the ultimate level, there is no true dukkha. That is, true dukkha exists on the conventional level by being merely designated by uh, concept and term. But on the ultimate level, there has never been any inherently existent true dukkha. True dukkha is naturally empty of inherent existence. Okay? It is not made empty by the wisdom realizing emptiness. It is naturally empty. It is similar for the other three of the four truths. They exist conventionally, but ultimately cannot be found by ultimate analysis. So ultimate analysis is the kind of probing uh, awareness, a probing wisdom that examines uh, how things actually exist on a deeper level. Conventional existence is how things exist on the level of appearances. Now there's the coarse and subtle four truth. Okay, so you can see we're going into more depth than you, than you sometimes get in an explanation. There's even more depth beyond this you can go into. So according to the Prasangika's unique presentation, the four truths have both a coarse and a subtle form. 
Okay, so this is the uncommon prasangika view. So Vasubandhu's treasury of knowledge, the Abhidharmakosa, and his brother Asanga's compendium of, of knowledge, the Ab Abhidharma Samuchaya, describe these course for truth. Okay, so Vasubandhu and, and Asanga are sages that are, you know, widely respected in the tradition. But they are explaining things according to the, uh, in general, not always, the common view. So in this instant, according to the course for truth. So here, with the course for truth, true dukkha is all unsatisfactory circumstances arising from grasping a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. True origins are the grasping of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person and the afflictions and polluted karma arising from this grasping. True cessations are the abandonment of dukkha and origins that arise from grasping a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. And true paths uh, is the wisdom, the, the principal true path is the wisdom that sees the absence of self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So this is the view held by the lower philosophical tenet systems, okay, where everything is based on, you know, the self-sufficient, substantially existent person grasping it to exist, what its results are, developing the wisdom that realize it doesn't exist, and attaining its cessation. Okay. So the four subtle truths that you're going to wonder what, uh, you know, before we go on, uh, what are the, what is grasping at a self-sufficient, substantially existent person? Wait for volume seven, okay, that I just sent back to the uh, editor last week. <laughs> so it won't be out until volume six comes out next month. Volume seven, uh, I think in February of next year. Okay, so, but I'll tell you anyway what means. So a self-sufficient, substantially existent person is a person that is independent from the aggregates, but feels like it can control the aggregates. Okay. So we have this all, you know, quite frequently in our lives. Yeah. There's a me. I'm not my body. I'm not my mind, but I control the body and mind. Okay. Yeah, that differs from, so that's the object of negation for the, uh, actually, when you meditate on the selflessness of persons, that's the object of negation for all the schools except the Prasangika Madhyamaka. Okay. So the four subtle, yeah, or the subtle four truths are described by the Prasangikas. 
True dukkha is the unsatisfactory circumstances that are rooted in grasping inherent existence, you know, and the karma that comes from that. True origins are grasping inherent existence of persons and phenomena and the afflictions and polluted karma that arise from that grasping. True cessations are the complete eradication of these, and true path, the principal truth path, is the wisdom realizing the emptiness of inherent existence. Okay? So it's a subtler form of grasping at the person than grasping at self-sufficient, substantially existent person is. As true origin, grasping inherent existence is much subtler and more tenacious than grasping a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. It is also more difficult to identify when you meditate on selflessness, because the first step when you go to meditate on selflessness, or at least of persons, is to identify the object that you're negating. Yeah, And it's much easier to get a sense of what a self-sufficient, substantially existent person would be if it existed, than to get a sense of what an inherently existent person would be if it existed. Okay? It's like it's easier to, um, uh, you know, it's easier to peel off the skin of, a, of an onion than to peel away the, the inner layers. Kind of like that. I'm sure you can think, you know, it's easier to get rid of the gross stains than the subtle stains. So like that. So ordinary beings, so ordinary beings are not Aryas. They haven't realized the emptiness of inherent existence yet. Ordinary beings can directly realize coarse selflessness, the lack of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Okay. But this realization alone, yeah, it's a good realization. It, it reduces a lot of your, uh, the intensity of a lot of your afflictions and your grasping. But this realization alone cannot remove the root of cyclic existence, yeah, which is the ignorance grasping inherent existence. At best, it can temporarily abandon coarse self-grasping and the afflictions that depend on it. Okay, Temporarily abandon coarse self-grasping and the afflictions that depend on it. Okay, Not even abandon coarse self-grasping from the root. Why? Because to eradicate any of the afflictions, gross or subtle, from the root, we have to uh, realize the emptiness of inherent existence. So even though this is the grasping at a self-sufficient, substantially existent person, to overcome it and eliminate it completely, we have to realize the emptiness of inherent existence, not just the emptiness or the selflessness of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Okay. So at best, it can temporarily abandon coarse self-grasping 
and the afflictions that depend on it. Therefore, the wisdom realizing the lack of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person is not an actual true path capable of cutting the root of cyclic existence. And the cessation of this grasping is not an actual true cessation. Here we see the far-reaching implications of the Prasangika's way of positing the object of negation and the importance of identifying it correctly in order to cultivate the wisdom that sees it as non-existent. So, so often, those of you who've studied the tenant systems, that also comes in, uh, more explanation on them comes in the in uh, volume seven, but it's sprinkled through the earlier volumes. Um, you know, the, the main, how you define the object of negation influences so much about the other tenets that a system or a school holds. Yeah, even though it's just one thing, it has far-reaching implications. So then you're going to say, well, wait a minute. You said that except for the Prasangikas, none of the other schools negate an inherently existent person when they meditate on the selflessness of person. So how do these people free themselves from samsara? Or are they unable to, you know? Okay, so... There is following a tenant system. There's two different ways to follow a tenant system. One is according to your motivation, and one is according to your philosophical tenets. Okay? So some people follow, let's say, the Vibhasaka or the Satantrika systems. Yeah. Um, because their motivation is to seek our hardship. They don't seek full awakening, you know. Also, the, the Yogacharya or Chitta Madrans, um, the, the scriptural proponents also say there's three f final vehicles, yeah? So you become an arhat and that's it. So that's according to your motivation. But... And so those people may say, well, I'm a Vibhasakama Satantrika, yeah, but according to, the according to their systems, just realizing the emptiness of self-sufficient substantial existence will enable them to become arhats. According to the Prasangika, that isn't sufficient. Does that mean that those people never become arhats? No, it doesn't mean that because the prasangikas also assert that even though those people follow that tenant system according to their motivation, according to their philosophy, they actually will have to follow the prasangika system. And so they say that the hearers and solitary realizers realize the same emptiness that the bodhisattvas realize. Okay. Even though the scriptures of that tenant of that tenant system don't say that, 
Yeah. So somebody is following a, a lower system according to motivation, but according to the tenets they hold, they're, they're still prosangikas. You know, in the same way, you can have people who by tenets hold the prasangika system and want to negate inherent existence, but by motivation, they aspire to become an arhat. So they're similar in that way to the vibhasakas and satranchakas. Okay? It gets clearer later on. <laughs> yeah. But it's essentially saying, um, this is like if you if you want to, I can't think of a good example offhand, so maybe I better not make one. So in this paragraph, I'm kind of stuck on that the direct realization of coarse selflessness only temporarily abandons coarse self-grasping. Does temporarily in that case basically mean only in that life? Because if it's a direct realization, I would think that in that lifetime, mm. coarse self-grasping wouldn't come back. Um, yeah, it, it means temporarily in that lifetime. In the following lifetime, uh, having realized that, I don't know. The person may have, they, they have a strong, you know, tendency towards that. But I don't know if that realization carries over into the next lifetime or if they just have a strong tendency because they have many seeds planted for it, but they still meditate again and develop that realization again. That's my guess about what happens because it hasn't been, you know, forever eradicated. Fortunately, I spaced out a little bit when you gave the definition of a substantially um, self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So can you please repeat okay. that? Okay. Can I repeat it? Okay. So it's a self that is distinct from the aggregates, and but yet controls the aggregates. Okay. So it's like a controller. I can control my body. I can control my mind. I tell my body what to do. I tell my mind what to do. Realizing the emptiness of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person, would you go through the same four-point analysis that's either got to be one or other separate right. from? Yeah, you use the same four points, but the first point is different because your object of negation it's is different. It's inherent existence. It's, it's self-sufficient, self substantially existent person. Yeah. Okay. Also, uh, the two, the vivasakas and the satantrakas, do not assert a selflessness of uh, phenomena. So they don't uh, talk about the the um, the selflessness of phenomena. But what they do say is that the aggregates, for example, of phenomena, are not. Uh, possessed by a an inherent uh, a self-sufficient substantially existent person so they are not the objects of possession of such a person so in that way they are selfless okay whereas the uh, madhyamakas say uh, they don't truly exist 
the, the aggregates themselves don't really exist, in addition to not being objects possessed by a truly existent person. I've heard a few times that we've kind of, or that, that the notion of being independent is kind of being equated with being inherent. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. It's one of those words that means different things in different contexts. Okay. When we talk about a soul, you know, or a self, which is the grossest kind of uh, concept of the self, permanent, unitary, and independent. Here, independent means, um, sometimes people say it means independent of cause and, causes and conditions. Yeah, that's how I've heard it. Some persons say it means independent of the aggregates, but that seems to go more with the self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Although some people say it goes with the permanent, unitary, independent uh, person. Okay, but when you get to it negating inherent existence, there, in what you're, uh, you know, if something inherently exists, it is independent of all factors whatsoever. Okay, it has its own independent, inherent uh, essence or nature. Okay, so it's one of those words that has many different meanings. And, you know, it's interesting because in English, when you're, or not English necessarily, but in whatever your native language is, you automatically can discern the different meanings of a familiar word according to how they occur in different circumstances, okay? Uh, it just happens, we can tell by the sentence structure, by the meaning of the sentence, it's, it, you know, we know the language so well. When we learn that another language, you know, especially in this case, we're learning Tibetan or Sanskrit or Pali, we want one word to have only one meaning in every single context. Yeah, because that would make it so much easier for us, wouldn't it? If one word just had one meaning and that was it. But other languages are just like our native language and one word can have many different meanings. Okay. So we begin to see that language is um, language can be messy. So regarding the comment that our, in order to become an arhat, one has to realize the prasangika view, for me, it's a little hard to buy into it because then why wouldn't the arhat have fixed the tenant system <laughs> who belonged in Vaibhashika or Sutrantika and say, actually, that's wrong. Let's go, let's go fix it because I realized it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so why wouldn't they have fixed their own system um, <laughs> to make it agree to Vrasangikas? Because these systems developed historically. Yeah. And as they develop historically and develop their own views, then they stuck with those views. And if you have Vasubandhu and Asanga asserting those views, and they are well-respected pandits, through all the, the tenet systems, yeah, 
then, you know, whatever they taught in their scriptures, you, you know, and those are the major scriptures in your particular tenet system, then you keep to it. So the Prasangikas, you know, they rely on uh, the Vasubandhu and Asanga uh, in, in some ways, you know, for the, some descriptions of the path. But then they also talk about Chandrakirti, Nagarjuna, and so on, that the lower systems don't talk about, partly because the lower systems developed historically and became widespread uh, before the Yogacarya or the Madhyamaka system. Although, according to, uh, you know, the, the Prasangika and the Tibetans, the Buddha taught all of those systems when he was alive, but some of them he taught publicly and some of them he taught to a select group. It's hard, you know, because these questions come up. Yeah, like, why don't they just fix it so it's all consistent? Why don't everybody just, you know, in, you know, negate the same thing and have the same tenets and, uh, you know, just tell me the one right way. Okay. But the re one of the reasons there's many tenant systems is because the, you know, and they hold different views is it's a way also to skillfully guide people to realize the Madhyamaka Prasangika view. Because if you teach some people the Prasangika view at the beginning, they misinterpret it and they confuse inherent existence with regular existence. So they say, oh, you negate inherent existence, therefore nothing whatsoever exists. And they fall to ex the extreme of nihilism. So to avoid that, you have all these earlier systems that don't teach such a radical view of the ultimate nature. You know? So when you start out with the Vibhasakas, you know, there's a lot of it that kind of agrees with how you ordinarily think, but it, there's enough that doesn't agree with that that pushes you to think more deeply about how things exist. Then the Sotatrikas, you know, they, they push you a little bit more. Yeah. Then the Yogacharyans, they push you some more. And then the Madhyamakas, the Svatantrikas, really push you. And then the Prasangikas say, Huh? <laughs> Over the cliff, yeah. They're the most radical. <laughs> read many of these texts, but did the authors say to the audience, I'm Satantrika, or is this a label that's applied to them in retrospect hundreds of years after it's they It's usually died? applied in retrospect. Okay. They usually don't say. Uh, because, you know, we have to see... Some people like to see Buddhism as, you know, whatever we're learning is ex has not been changed or elaborated on or commented on, or and nothing's happened to it. Okay, but in fact, it's a living tradition, and the Buddha gave a lot of teachings to different people according to their disposition, but. He couldn't teach everything, and he couldn't flesh out all the details. Okay, 
So that was left to the people who wrote the treatises and the people who wrote the commentaries. So as time went on, people wrote treatises, you know, on certain topics, drawing from different um, sutras, and then they developed commentaries, taking one sutra and developing, you know, commenting on that. Then they had commentaries on the treatises. Then they had auto-commentaries on the commentaries. And then, you know, then you, so then you have the Indian writings, then you have the Tibetan writings, and the Japanese writings, and the Chinese writings, and now you have the Westerners writing things, and, you know, there's lots and lots of commentaries trying to flesh out the meaning uh, of things, yeah? So, yeah, and it developed, all of this happened, you know, it didn't come about, bammo, when the Buddha was alive, it developed gradually. But, you know, you can, there, there's these two ways of, you know, no, the Buddha taught everything, you know, at the beginning, and no, there was gradual development. And you can say, yeah, he taught the essential points at the beginning, and they were fleshed out and gradually developed as time went on. Studying the tenet of um, Geshe Wangmo, um, she said that Geshe Pasang um, said that the tenet is not to be meant to be um, easy. It's a process of learning to sharpen your intelligence. Mm -hmm. So as higher you get with the tenet, as more you negate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why you start with what's easier to negate rather than something that really threatens how you've completely structured your everything about yourself and your life okay it's it's called going to kindergarten first yeah don't start with calculus um, yeah there's some questions on uh-huh go ahead so someone asked must one realize core selflessness directly before realizing emptiness of inherent existence directly ah uh, I don't think that's necessary. Some may do it. I don't think that it's casting concrete that one has to. And the other is, does the self-sufficient, substantially existent person still take rebirth due to the effect of the five aggregates that create dukkha? I can't see the difference there. The, a self-sufficient, substantially existent person does not exist. So you do not... That person does not take rebirth. Yeah. Do you still take rebirth if you have grasping at the self-sufficient, substantially existent person? Yes, because you still haven't realized the deeper selflessness of the emptiness of inherent existence. And I have a question. Yes. <laughs> you know, sometimes we talk about the analogy of the head salesperson and the other salespeople. Uh huh. But then in that case, um, I've always, have I misunderstood? The head salesperson, is it one of the aggregates? Or no, the self sufficient, substantially existent self is distinct. It can't be one of the aggregates. Okay, no, it, it can't be one. Yeah. And uh, that example of the salesperson and so forth, and, um, and they, that comes from Zhang Liang Shepa. And he has his unique view about 
there being uh, two levels of self grasping at self-sufficient, substantially existing person. Okay? So, and that is the example used for the second level. But the other uh, monasteries, yeah, Jiangya Shepa is from Gomang, Dripung uh, Gomang. The other monasteries just talk about one level of grasping self-sufficient, substantially existing person. Yes, I struggled. <laughs> Geshila and I, on volume seven, went over this again and again to try and get it right, because I had studied this according to the two views, and I had written that, and then Geshila said, where did you get this? You know, this isn't correct. <laughs> and then, you know, he explained this, you know, correct meaning it wasn't his way of learning. But, you know, he was familiar with Zhang Shepa, so, you know, we figured out that's Zhang Shepa's view, but that's not necessarily the view that everybody holds. Okay, so even among the Prasangikas, there are different views. So if this self-sufficient, substantially existent self is distinct from the aggregates, how does it differ from the the one before, which we also the soulish one that's also distinct from the aggregates? Okay, the the soul one is a, a just has an acquired level. It's just based on learning a false philosophy or psychology. Yeah. The grasping at a self-sufficient, substantial existent person has an acquired level that you can learn from false philosophies. It also has an innate level. And the, the innate level can only be uh, done away with by the realization of emptiness. Okay, So the one about the soul, it's... it's um, yeah, it's it's just much grosser, you know, like, and it usually comes with the idea that there was a creator who created the soul, okay, that made us unique. Whereas with the idea of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person, uh, you probably wouldn't have the idea of a creator that created that, Yeah. Huh? No, it's impermanent. The self-sufficient, substantially existent one is impermanent. Okay? Whereas the soul one is permanent. And the self-sufficient, substantially existent one also wouldn't be monolithic. It would have, you know, different aspects. We're having a contest between the two of them who can ask the most questions. <laughs> It's good. If if you ask questions, that's how you learn. That's good. So one of the teachings I heard, um, a teacher mentioned that permanent, a unitary, independent person is a different character of the five aggregates. Yeah. Versus self-sufficient, substantially existent person is the same character of the five aggregates. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm just trying to tease out what it means to be independent of the aggregates, but the same character of the five yeah, aggregates. Yeah, that, uh, I'm not sure. Maybe... Yeah, because usually when they say different from the aggregates, it means they don't have the same character. But maybe that person is following Jamming Shepa. <laughs> yeah, that could be. Yeah, or 
uh, you know, that kind of person since, or that kind of grasping of that kind of person, um, they don't grasp the aggregates or the person as being permanent. So in that respect, it would have that same characteristic. Now, the 16 attributes of the four truths of the Aryas. But first, a question. <laughs> the self-established, uh, sorry. Self-sufficient, substantially. Thank existed. you. It's a tongue twister. <laughs> yeah. The self-sufficient, substantially, self-sufficient, substantially existent person is impermanent. How does it differ from the conventionally existent person who is impermanent? Because it is a person that is diff uh, a different entity, a different nature. Than, uh, it is different, distinct from the aggregates. Whereas a conventionally existent person is imputed independence on the aggregates. It, it gets complicated because... Because imputed has also has many different meanings according to the Dennett system, okay? But it's just, um, yeah, it's different. <laughs> yeah, um, because you know, a, uh, an inherent, a conventionally existent person, okay, according to the Prasangikas. Uh, exists by mere imputation on a basis of designation, yeah? But a self-sufficient, substantially existent person has some, it still has some independent existence, yeah? It's still, because we create that idea based on first grasping an inherently existent person. So in our lives, first there's grasping at inherent existence. That gives rise to then grasping at a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Okay? Which is a, a grosser kind of thing. And, well, what's the difference? The conventionally existent person exists. This self-sufficient, substantially existent one doesn't exist. Okay. Why doesn't it exist? Because you can't find that kind of person when you search either in the aggregates or separate from the aggregates. Okay. So even though that person is said to be different from the aggregates, you can't find it different from the aggregates. Okay? Because the whole idea of why are these objects of negation, because, you know, the, the way the person is asserted to exist, there is an error in that. And so that error is what is negated. Hmm? Yeah, <laughs> it's a process. Okay, so the 16 attributes of the four truths are found in the treasury of knowledge, okay, which was by Vasubandhu, um, Asanga's uh, Shravaka grounds, or Shravaka Bhumi, and Dharmakirti's commentary on reliable cognition, which we've had the fortune to study with De uh, Geshe Tapke. 
And uh, he'll be teaching us again in October, continuing with that text. Uh, they are taught, these 16 as, uh, attributes, are taught to protect sentient beings from dukkha by helping them to develop wisdom and insight. Each truth has four attributes which counteract four distorted conceptions about each truth. Okay, so you, you have each truth has four distorted conceptions and each attribute contra, uh, overcomes or contradicts those four, one of those four. But I will warn you ahead of time that different texts um, don't always agree on which uh, attribute overcomes which misconception of that particular truth. Yeah. So it's called when you're trying to figure this out, pulling your hair out. Okay. So many reasons for this hairdo. <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to eliminating these 16 misconceptions, which are obstacles to attaining liberation, the 16 attributes establish the existence of liberation and the method to attain it. So each attribute is a quality of that truth and reveals a specific function of that truth. So to realize the four truths, you have to realize the, four, the 16 aspects. If you have doubts regarding the possibility of eradicating dukkha forever, and if you wonder whether nirvana exists and if it's possible to attain it, contemplation on the 16 attributes of the four truths will be very helpful. As we reflect on them, we may discover that we hold some of these misconceptions that are refuted. Okay. Uh, making effort to understand the 16 attributes will help us dis to dispel these misconceptions, clearing the way for wisdom to arise. Okay, so it's, it's really good when you get into the 16 to ask yourself, you know, with each one, uh, do I see that as true or is somewhere in my own mind am I holding to the misconception? Uh -huh. Because we hold all sorts of misconceptions, even though from our mouth we say, oh, that kind of belief, you know, doesn't, that kind of thing doesn't exist. But in our very being, we grasp at it as existing. Okay, so we have to really check deeply. Unless otherwise noted, the 16 aspects are presented according to the common view acceptable to all Buddhist tenant systems. And that's how they're usually taught. However, the unique prasangika meaning is also presented when it differs from this. So in some aspects, prasangikas you know, uh, di talk differently. The chief thing, uh, reason being because they negate inherent existence and not self-sufficient, substantially existence. 
So please note that while each truth is often stated in the singular, like we say, true origin, true cessation, it actually has many components. So sometimes it's expressed in the plural. So there's many true cessations, there's many true paths, many true origins, many true dukkhas, yeah? Even though sometimes we just express it as there's one. Okay, should we start with the four attributes of true dukkha? These are really interesting. Okay, so true dukkha is the polluted aggregates principally caused by afflictions and karma. So they include internal true dukkha, such as our polluted bodies and minds, because internal is whatever is attached to the continuum of the person, and external true dukkha, such as our habitats and the things in them. The four attributes of two, true dukkha, okay? Impermanent dukkha or unsatisfactory, empty and selfless, counteract the four distorted conceptions or, or they're all sometimes called conceptualizations or sometimes distortions. There's many different names. So they, the four distortions are believing impermanent things to be permanent, believing things that are by nature unsatisfactory to be pleasurable, believing what is unattractive and foul to be attractive, and believing what lacks a self to have one. So here, uh, the Buddha said, in distortions of the mind, this is a sutra in the Pali Canon. Perceive, so you notice in this, we're going, we're talking, we have quotes from the Pali tradition, we have quotes from sutras in the Mahayana tradition. The idea is for people to see how similar the, the things are, and when there is difference, how the Sanskrit tradition builds on the Pali tradition. It doesn't contradict it. Okay, so the distortions of the mind says, perceiving permanence in the impermanent, perceiving pleasure in what is dukkha, perceiving a self in what is not self, and perceiving beauty in what is foul. Beings resort to wrong views, their minds deranged, their perception twisted. Okay, let's just stop here and look at it. Perceiving impermanence in the impermanent. Okay, now this is a good idea, a good example. Yeah, we say, yes, of course. Everything's impermanent. Even the scientists tell us that. You know, even in an atom, everything's, the electrons are whirling around in and out, and, you know, everything's changing every moment. We all know that from, you know, elementary school science. But when somebody dies, we freak out. When a dear one dies, we freak out. Why do we freak out? Because somewhere deeply in our mind, we think that people are permanent. Even though our eyes tell us that's not true, 
and we see the people we love age. Even we see it with our eyes, inside, this person is not going to die. And I am not going to die. So you see how messed up our minds are? You know, when they talk about ignorance and afflictions, this, I mean, this is a really good example, that what we see with our eyes, we do not understand in our heart, and, it, and we don't even live like we understand it, even though we talk up a good storm about everything being impermanent. Yeah. Perceiving pleasure in what is dukkha. Yeah. So we were just talking uh, yesterday about the dukkha of change. Yeah. And how we uh, have happiness from some things and then it turns into unhappiness. Yeah. So, but when we have happiness, we perceive pleasure in those objects, in those activities. Yeah. When the circumstances change, we're miserable. But, like we talked yesterday, we still do those same things that in the end will make us miserable, but for the time being make us happy. Okay? So it's like, you know, you drink. And you go to a party and you have a, a supposedly good time. And then you have a hangover the next day. Yeah, that's Friday night. Saturday, you Saturday morning, you're miserable because you have a hangover. What do you do Saturday night? You go out and drink again. Even though you know that the, it's going to bring you a hangover on the next day. And that even while you're drunk yourself, you know, during that time when you're drunk, are you really happy? Some people get ferociously angry when they're drunk. They behave abominably, you know, and they lash out out of anger and resentment and so on. But, and they throw up, yeah, and, you know, if you belong to a, if you're rushing for a fraternity, you might even die. There's too many of those happen, deaths happening. But what, what do we do? Well, we do it anyway. We think, oh, I'm going to have fun this time. Yeah. And so we consider ourselves these intelligent beings but, you know, we are sometimes out to lunch, totally out to lunch. Okay, perceiving a self in what is not a self. Okay, so if we start with the very gross view of there being a permanent, unitary, independent self, yeah, we believe in that. And we believe in a, an independent creator who created such a self, such a soul. And then when we suffer, we pray to the creator 
to please get rid of our suffering. Yeah? That doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work. We heard this a story. One of our, our friends teaches um, middle school, and they had one of the kids in the school. I forget what happened. Anybody remember that one of the kids died? What? He was hit by a car or something like that, and he died. So, of course, it's a shock for the other kids. So one child, you know, his family, uh, you know, believed in a creator, believed in a soul, and said to, to the child who was grieving, uh, you know, your God has taken your friend to heaven. Your friend's soul is now with God. Okay. And the parent, of course, said that to comfort the child. But it didn't comfort the child. The child said, I don't like God if he makes my friends die. Okay? So that kind of thing, it's meant to be consoling, but on another level, it, it doesn't hold water. Why would a compassionate God do that? Then the fourth one, perceiving beauty in what is foul. So this morning we talked a little bit about the body. So the body is the primary example of this. You know, if you look at the inside of your body, have you ever been at, at a, um, an autopsy or in a, um, in a uh, what is it, you know, where you dissect a, Anatomy class, yeah. Anatomy class, the corpses don't really look, you know, I mean, you know they were people, but they still, not so much. When you're at an autopsy, the body's fresh, okay? So in uh, Thailand, often the, uh, the monastics go to an autopsy because it really helps you to meditate on... Uh, the foulness of the body. So when I stayed at the, uh, the Theravada temple where I was at, I asked if I could go to, uh, an, you know, if they could arrange for me to uh, go to an autopsy because in the States they, they won't let people do it. So the, the abbot very kindly arranged that. And so a few of us went. There was me and then my companion, one, one woman from Singapore. And then there were two monks, I think, maybe three. So we went to see that. The monks were so afraid that my friend and I were going to faint. Okay? And they kept on saying, you know, it's okay if it's too intense, you just back away. You know, because one of the monks had fainted when he uh, went to see. And my friend and I are looking at each other and, and we're saying, you guys... You know, we, co we cooked in our kitchen with mothers who cooked meat. And we saw, maybe not a human body, but we saw raw meat. And we saw bones and we saw cartilage. And this is not going to freak us out. We thought it was very funny that they were so afraid that we would faint, you know, because women are like, 
delicate and, you know, whatever, I don't know. Anyway, we went, and it was so interesting, you know, to, to be there, because the, the person, he had died, they found his body in a canal, so he had died by drowning. But of course, they have to dissect the whole body to find that out. So they have, uh, a, you know the scales that you have in grocery stores to weigh your apples? You know, with the big kind of bin that hang from the ceiling. So they have those things. So they take out the lungs, they weigh the lungs, you know, like you're weighing apples or something, you know. They weigh the brain, the, they weigh the different organs, because that all goes into the autopsy. They have a, a thing, you know, I'm telling you this because maybe you don't know how they do it. That, so they have some kind of rota, maybe venerable losang, do you, is there some kind of tool where the blade goes round and around like this? Yeah, so there's a rotating things that you probably have something similar for cutting wood or whatever, but here they use it. So they start the autopsy by cutting all the way around here, okay? And then they just lift the skull out. And then the, there's the brain there. And then they pop the brain out and they weigh it and they look at it and everything like that. And then they uh, go down here and they open up here and they pull the tongue out from below and the esophagus, you know, to, and to look how it looks. And then they, you know, use the blade and they cut all the way down, you know, here and open it up. So including cutting your rib cage and opening it up, okay? And so then, you know, you see the skin, you know, and it's not like when somebody's alive. You see the bones, you see the tissue. They, you know, they'll pull out the lungs, they'll pull out the stomach, they'll pull out the spleen and the liver and the intestines. They weigh all these things, they examine all of these things to see what the course, the cause of death is. And then, you know, when the autopsy is completed, and we were able to just stand there. And it was very interesting because, uh, you know, he's working with tools. And so the body's out there. So he puts the tools kind of, you know, on the top of your legs and then cuts here and then puts the tools back and then cuts some more and puts the tools back, you know. And, and then at the end, you know, they have to stitch the body back together again because the family is going to see it and so on. So then they just take all the organs plus all the newspaper that they had put the organs on, you know, when they put it on the scales and so on. Stuff everything in any old which way. They don't put it back where it belongs. They just stuff it in. And then... So the person up, you know, and stuff some newspaper in here, put your, you know, your, the top of your skull on, stitch it up. Oh, I forgot to mention, before they cut the skull, they peel away the scalp. 
So then they, after they stitch up or glue the, the, the skull, then they pull the scalp back over and, you know, make it look normal. And, you know, sometimes they put a hat on the person or something so they can't see where the skull was at, you know. So you get to look at the body and, you know, you really begin to ask your yourself, is this something pure and attractive? Yeah, what do I think is so gorgeous and beautiful about this body? You know, it just isn't. No way, shape, or form. Yeah. And then you start saying, why in the world yeah, do I cling to my own body so much if it's just this gunky stuff? And why do I get turned on looking at other people's bodies which are just a sack of gunky stuff? Okay? And then you see when it says, you know, uh, one distortion is be perceiving beauty in what is foul, then you see, yeah, I have that distortion in my mind. I'll, I'll just add one more, more little part about this and then we'll stop, um, even though we've gone over time. Uh, I taught this at one, uh, at one Buddhist college. It was a college and a Dharma center. And they asked me to, to teach on this. So I taught on it. And And people were so upset. It was like, why are you saying the body is so foul? You know, because there was had been this whole body is beautiful and, you know, make your own body happy and pleasurable and all this stuff. And they said, well, this is, you know, we don't want to hear this. This just, it, it's something, something's wrong with seeing the body like this, you know? It was like saying, we don't believe it's true, if, if we don't care if it's true or not, we don't want to, we don't want to think about it, you know? And if it's true, you know, it's, it's fake news. And uh, we have alternative facts, which is the body is beautiful. And when I told them, because Nagarjan is very clear in Precious Garland that if you cannot understand the foulness of the body, which you can see with your senses and, you know, smell and I wouldn't say taste, but, you know, is obvious to your senses. If you cannot accept that and realize that, how are you going to realize emptiness? Yet all the people at the center, they wanted to hear the teachings on emptiness, but they didn't want to hear about the, you know, the foulness of the body. So this is just, you know, our ignorance, isn't it? Yeah. And how out of touch with reality our minds are. Okay, we will stop with that gem of wisdom. <laughs> yeah. 
so I was also, when I was in Thailand, they gave me a, a whole set of, uh, they had gone to another autopsy, and uh, this was by someone, I think, who had been shot, and he bled out. And so they gave me the pictures that they had from that autopsy. I think we took pictures at the one I was at, too. They also uh, gave me somebody, I don't know if the, this monastery gave me, somebody gave me pictures of the tsunami victims from Thailand. Remember the big tsunami? And because so many people had been at the beach and nobody knew a tsunami was coming, it crashed, all these people drowned, and then they had to identify the bodies. In this picture, they had the body and the person's ID card. And the way the person looked in the ID card and the way they looked after the tsunami got to them, completely different. And you really, again, see how the body is nothing gorgeous. Yeah? And why, when we practice the Dharma, we keep our body clean, we keep it healthy, but we don't get attached to it. 